Hello, everyone, and welcome to On The Market. I'm your host, Dave Meyer. And today we are bringing back one of our most popular guests of all time. His name is Richard Barkham. And if you weren't around for his first interview or just need a quick refresher, he is the executive director and global chief economist of CBRE. If you aren't familiar with CBRE in general, it's one of the biggest or maybe even the biggest commercial real estate company in the world. And so they do a ton of research into what's going on into the commercial real estate markets. Now, I know not everyone who listens to the show is interested in commercial real estate or is buying commercial real estate. But first of all, I think most real estate investors start with residential and move towards commercial. So it's helpful to know about it. But I also think a lot of the things that I'm planning to talk to Richard about have parallels between the two markets, between residential and between commercial real estate. Things like rent growth and supply and demand, which markets are doing well, don't perfectly align, but they often have some overlaps that can be useful to basically any type of real estate investor. So I am super excited to bring Richard on, and he has great up-to-date information about the market that I think is going to be very helpful for you in planning your strategy in 2024. I also want to mention one thing before we bring Richard on. It's a new virtual summit. It's hosted by me and a couple of your favorite other personalities and bigger pockets. It's going from January 22nd to January 25th. And the whole idea behind this is to help you develop your strategy and tactics that are going to work well for you in 2024. We're pulling out all the stops. We have all the best teachers that you probably are familiar with coming to this. And if you want to join on the first day for January 22nd, second, I will be giving a free state of the market update to help everyone understand what tactics might be working in 2024. And then the subsequent days, which are only available to pro members, are going to be taught by Henry and James and a bunch of other of the BP personalities that are experts in their respective field. So if you wanted to sign up for the summit, you definitely should. Just go to biggerpockets.com slash virtual summit. You get all the details and information there. With that, let's bring on Richard Barkham from CBRE. Richard, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being here. Delighted to be here um, at the start of January 2024, looking out over the prospects for the year. Well, we're definitely going to pick your brain on that. But first things first, for our audience who didn't catch your first appearance last year, can you tell us just a little bit about yourself? My name is Richard Barkham. Um, I'm CBRE's Global Chief Economist, but I'm also Head of Research for CBRE in America and globally. Um, for, for those that don't know CBRE, we're the world's biggest uh, property services uh, provider um, uh, with, uh, I think, approximately 380 offices around the world, 110,000 people. Um, and my research team, you know, this usually surprises people, is about uh, 650 people strong. Um, so these are all people who are involved in researching and, and gathering data on global real estate markets and global real estate trends. I remember being jealous of that figure last time that we spoke. Our, uh, our research team at Bigger Pockets, while very capable, is... Uh, 
maybe one six hundredth of that size. So well, you can do a lot with a small team. Yeah, yeah, we we do we do we don't have as broad a scope as you do. So let's just start talking about the general economy. Richard, what did you and your team think was going to happen last year? And how, if you had to grade yourself on your predictions, how well did you do? Um, well, we thought there would be a, a mild recession last year. Um, and in fact, we turned out to the U.S. economy had a 2.4% GDP growth. So um, I think uh, we wouldn't grade ourselves that highly. I mean, you know, a bare pass probably. I don't we weren't the only economists, including the Fed, that, that made that mistake. Um, and I have to say, I think if I was to explain that, I'd put, you know, why did why did our forecasts, you know, go so wrong or why was the economy so good? I'd put it down to three factors, one of which we could have foreseen, perhaps two which we couldn't. Um, the first one was just the resilience of the consumer um, in 2023. And, you know, why was that? Well, you know, in other in other periods, you know, uh, uh, an interest rate hike you know, uh, of that nature would derail the consumer. But in this particular period, I think the consumer, um, because of refinancing mortgages in the 2020, 2021 kind of period, um, you know, with all of that, that kind of fixed low interest debt was somewhat resilient to interest rate rises. So, um you know, we might reasonably have seen that, but the consumer performed very well. Um, I have to say the rest of the story was about government action, which was um, a little bit more unpredictable. What do I mean by that? Well, we had a debt crisis. You remember the banks, you know, we had the failure of two or three banks. I think if the Fed and the FDIC hadn't intervened so quickly, um, we would have had a recession. Um, and it's like, the Fed, everything the Fed took 18 months to do, and the FDIC in the great financial crisis, they did in a week. So I think, you know, that was, uh, you know, uh, unpredictable. And the other thing um, was just that uh, the government deficit blew out from 5.2% to 7.5%. And the reasons were that tax revenue fell short. But fiscal stimulus is fiscal stimulus. And it was a very, very odd thing to see, you know, there's this old uh, phrase, don't fight the Fed. Well, effectively, the federal government was fighting the Fed. Um, so, you know, they came along and, uh, you know, a mixture of those three factors uh, uh, gave us that, that, that good growth, which we were delighted to see um, in 2023. Now that we've discussed the macroeconomic climate, we're going to dig into the commercial real estate situation right after this quick break. Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages. Until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high-quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do-not-call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. 
Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. Buy low, sell high. Very easy to say, but not always so easy to do. For example, high interest rates are hurting the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices in a lot of markets are falling, even for many of the best assets. So it's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting Fundrise.com slash pockets. Fundrise.com slash pockets. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at Fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome back to the show. We are speaking with Richard Barkham from CBRE. And what about commercial real estate, your area of expertise? It's been a tumultuous and confusing ride for this industry. So can you just give us a summary of where commercial wound up at the end of the year? You know, if you think about the the four main food groups of offices, industrial, retail, and multifamily, um, if you look at it in the simplest way of explaining this, it's just the, the vacancy rate. If you look at those four sectors, you'd say that um, multi-industrial and retail, the fundamentals are still actually pretty good. So this kind of um, you know, unexpected growth uh, in the economy in 2023 really fed through into um, you, you know, continued good health in the majority of real estate. Now, of course, rental growth slowed. Um, because in the case of multifamily and industrial, we've got a lot of supply coming on, on, uh, online. But, you know, the, the, the strength of the economy certainly boosted those sectors. Um, and, you know, we've got a little bit of an increase in vacancy rate, but not much. Um, by contrast, the office sector, um, we, we vacancy rose um, yeah, almost to 19.8%. We think vacancy will peak out this year at 19.8%. I mean, that's the highest level of vacancy in offices um, since uh, tw- you know, the, the, the early 1990s. Um, so uh, offices have had a, a, um, a pretty tough time this year, but that's only one quarter of the real estate firmament. Um, and the alternative sectors, hotels, uh, data centers, uh, self-storage, all, um, you know, chugging along quite nicely, I would say. Um, so that's on the fundamental side. On capital markets, which is, you know, the, 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 the buying and selling of real estate, well, things were very quiet. Um, and, you know, people were just uncertain about interest rates. So, um, you know, uh, uh, unwilling to, to commit um, while there was so much uncertainty about uh, the direction of interest rates. Um, well, and of course, you know, now that we've had the Fed's pivot or apparent pivot, 
that sets the scene for a, a more positive 2024 in terms of investment transactions. And when you look at these strong fundamentals across the different food groups, as you called them, why are they so much more resilient? I feel like for years we've sort of been hearing about a potential decline in commercial real estate. Like, What is keeping it so strong? It's the economy. Real estate isn't – people don't – to, uh, occupy real estate for its own purpose. They they occupy it for you know the utility that it brings in in, in the industrial and logistics sector. It's about shipping you know goods to consumers more quickly, and you know some of that is you know used to go through shopping centres, now goes through the uh, industrial and distribution network. Um, uh, you know, in the case of multifamily, it's a slightly different story. There, I think the story it's it's. It's more to do. We haven't built enough houses um, in the United States. We're short somewhere between two and four million housing units, so um, or single-family units. So people are, um, you know, uh, 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 are renting multifamily units. Um, there's just strong population growth, strong job growth, um, and not enough houses. Um, and in the case of retail, well, you know, we've. You know, retail has had the headwinds against it, I think, since 2016. Um, you know, as you say, it's one of these things that, 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 that people talk about real estate. Um, uh, you know, retail being in the, the kind of um, the downdraft of the, the digital economy. But um, over the course of the pandemic, I think the retail sector, retailers got better. You know, they restructured their balance sheets. Um, they all have got pretty slick omni-channel retail offerings now. And the thing about retail is we haven't built any new retail space for, for 10 or 15 years. So actually, there's a shortage of grade A space in the, in the prime retail areas. So it's a slightly mixed story in each of those sectors. Um, but they all add up to relatively positive fundamentals. Of course, in offices, it's different. In offices, um, arguably, uh, you know, we went into the COVID crisis or, uh, with, with perhaps a, a sector with, with too much accumulated uh, depreciation or too many poor quality offices. And then you've, you know, had the emergence of technology that's allowed people to, remo uh, to work remotely. And of course, that has changed the usage of office, um, you know, quite substantially. Um, and companies have uh, reduced the amount of space that they, they, they've been leasing, hence the rise in vacancy. I think this is a good reminder for everyone listening that when you hear the term commercial real estate, it's not just one big thing. There are many different subcategories of commercial real estate. Today, so far, we've been talking about multifamily, retail, office, but there are also things like industrial, there's medical, there's students, there is uh, all, all sorts of different things um, that, that you need to consider. And each of them has unique fundamentals. Even if you took retail, most people think about retail as being malls. And they think, oh, you know, all, all of those B&C malls, they're, they're really struggling. But malls are only 10, 15% of overall retail space. Mm -hmm. there's, much more, there's much more retail space in kind of strip format or, or standalone format and grocery anchored kind of open air format. And, and that retail that is non-mall in the suburban areas 
is really doing very well at the moment. So, it, you know, you're quite right. There, there's, a, there's a huge diversity of real estate, commercial real estate, serving a wide variety of locations and different business needs. Great. That's a great point. Thank you. You know, Richard, I'd love to focus in a little bit on multifamily here for a minute, because that is what most of our audience here are investing in or are aspiring to invest in. And from what I see in the data, cap rates are going up, not as quickly as, frankly, I thought they would be going up at this point in the cycle. And so valuations are down a little bit. Transactions are down. And it seems like most investors I know are sort of in this wait and see period about what's going to happen in the multifamily space. Do you have any insights on how that market is evolving? You know, let's not forget that the 10-year treasury, which is the kind of benchmark for investors, why put your money into real estate uh, if you can get a you know decent return in a secure government security? So the... Um, you know, the 10-year Treasury peaked at 5% in October. Now, we always said that that was too high. That reflected, you know, uh, kind of short-term issues and that the 10-year Treasury was going to come down. But that kind of spike in the 10-year Treasury, um, because it fed through into the cost of commercial debt um, and, and fed through into uncertainty and, and into spreads, really caused investors to... I mean, they'd been reluctant to, to commit all the, all the year, but that was the kind of peak level of uncertainty. Now, as we go into 2024, the 10-year Treasury is now 3.9%, or it was when I last looked. So that's 100 basis points off. And, you know, it's, it's quite clear. We're not quite through the inflation surge yet, but we are, you know, 60 to 70% of the way through. And so people are much more comfortable about, you know, the fact that interest rates may be higher for longer, but they are heading in the right direction. And um, credit conditions might still be tight and that the cost of loans high. But from this point onwards, they're likely to 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 be coming down. Um, and when, you know, uh, and of course, I think if there's a fit, you know, the, the you know, on the fundamental side, the... Um, the, the single most important variable for multifamily is the uh, unemployment level. And I think over the course of 23, when everybody, including ourselves, was talking about recession, people had a fear that unemployment was going to go up. And that then feeds into vacancy. Of course, that hasn't happened. And I think, um, you know, the fact that we're going to enter 2024, you know, with a reasonable de degree of confidence that we get a soft landing. So we might get some increase in unemployment, but not much. I think that gives people confidence that the the recovery in lettings that took place in June of, of uh, 2023 um, is going to continue. Um, so, you know, if I put some numbers on that, um, at the moment we're at a, a peak level of new supply in the multifamily sector. So there's a, there's a big accumulated wave of construction something like 90,000 units per quarter are going to be delivered all the way through into 2025. Um, but the good news is that 60 to 70,000 units per quarter are being absorbed. So some of those, those units are going to be vacant, um, but that's, you know, we, we see vacancy rates only really going up a small portion to their long-run averages. Um, and... Uh, you know, I think letting is, is going to continue. And I think the, the high cost of mortgages 
Um, and we've done some analysis that, that, that shows that, you know, the cost of buying a home is 50% higher than the cost of renting the equivalent. So for the time being, until those mortgage rates come down, um, uh, you know, with, you know, relatively healthy employment market, you know, people are going to be uh, setting up home and, and, and leasing apartments. And that's going to, you know, keep the fundamentals. Now, I would say the rental growth that we saw in multifamily, you know, over the COVID period, which 2020 to 2022, maybe 24% rental growth has fallen to probably 0% right now. Um, so there's, there's, there's not much rental growth nationally. Um, uh, 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 and that reflects the, the, the new supply. But there are two ways of looking at that. I mean, I think that's, you know, that's very healthy. I don't think 24% rental, uh, rental growth in the sector is good for anybody, including landlords and investors. Um, you know, at normal levels of rental growth at around the rate of inflation, um, are what, what landlords should look, look towards. Um, and, you know, that just, uh, uh, means that, uh, Occupying, you know, a home um, doesn't become unaffordable for people. If we get those sort of high levels of rental growth, just attracts politicians who want to say control rents and do you know, do, do rent rent control. So, I don't know. I think things look, you know, even despite this, the fact that that there is a little bit of a uh, balance of supply over demand at the moment, I would say that's that's pretty healthy. That's interesting because when I look at it, just frankly, and I see. Uh, all this new supply coming online, it's actually been going on for a little while now, but we're in the midst of a sort of a supply glut. And then there are these potential declines in demand due to uh, potential economic headwinds. Um, that's obviously uncertain, but it's possible. Then you look at the cost of debt and all these different things are going on in the multifamily space, but cap rates just haven't really adjusted in my mind to the level of what would be necessary to take on some of the risk. And so I'm just curious, do you think cap rates are going to increase um, in, in the near term or do you think they've sort of settled out? And before I, we turn it over to you, Richard, I just want to explain to our audience what a cap rate is. It stands for capitalization rate. Um, it's a very commonly used metric in commercial real estate. And it's basically a measurement of market sentiment and how much investors are willing to pay for a given asset uh, in a given time. And when cap rates are low, that tends to favor sellers and it's not as good for buyers. And when cap rates are higher, it's better for buyers, not as good for sellers, just generally speaking. And what's happened over the last few years is that cap rates have gone up a little bit to improve the conditions for buyers. But frankly, to me and the people I talk about, everyone's still kind of waiting um, for cap rates to go up. And for all the reasons you just explained, that might not happen. But I'm just curious if you think there's any chance that they keep growing or are people just waiting for something that's never going to happen? Um, let me just add to your excellent description of cap rates. You know, uh, we, we always explain it. It's the net operating income from the property. Uh, divided by the price. So it's a kind of, uh, you know, it's an income yield. Um, and, you know, best equivalent is the, the kind of bond yield. So, you know, when that yield is low, 
um, it implies the price is high. And when the cap rate is high, it implies the price is falling. So it's a metric that kind of explains prices. But, you know, most people, when they look at an investment and they, you know, it's like a rate of interest. They, you know, they want to see, is it 2%, 5% or 7%? And as you say, you know, at the, at the current levels of, of 6%, people might not be thinking those cap rates now, that's just not enough, given that you can get 4% in the bond market. That spread between the bond market and the multifamily market is not big enough. Well, you've got to remember that multifamily, you know, with, with real estate, you don't just get the, the cap rate. You do get some capital value growth over time, um, maybe, um, you know, on average, 2 or 3%, maybe a little bit more than that in the best quality. So you have to add that to the cap rate. So if multifamily cap rates are, are 6% and maybe over the next five years, we can expect 2% um, capital value uplift, that's a, a total return of 8%. Um, and with debt rates, you know, at 6.5%, um, you know, we're beginning to see that the kind of all-in cost of capital that, that you know, people, um, you know, if they want to finance multifamily, is coming into line with those forward rates of return. Mm-hmm. Um, not on all uh, uh, on all um, multifamily assets, but um, our feeling is that that balance, as, as interest rates come down over 2024, and we probably get some increase, just a, a little bit further increase in, in cap rates, then at some point over the course of 2024, people will say, well, okay, um, I can get six and a half percent cap rate out of multifamily. I can probably now see two to three percent rental growth over the next five years or seven years. That's a nine and a half percent rate of return. My all-in cost of debt and equity is eight and a half percent. This is a viable asset, mm-hmm. um, um, and you know I think that that will become that that will be the story over 2024. Um, the, the, the equation that stimulates activity in real estate becomes more positive and favorable. And some of that hesitation that investors have made, um, uh, you know, will disappear from the market. And it may well be that, you know, in all of these kind of situations when markets have to pick up again, there's a pioneer group. And it may well be overseas capital coming in and people will see overseas capital committing um, and then think, okay, you know, uh, it's safe to go back in. Or it might be the institutional capital. I suspect it might be that, that the institutional capital, which has been waiting on the wings for two, two and a half years, will say, okay, now is the time to invest. And we can probably get better prices now than we have done in 10 years. So, um, you know, given that interest rates are heading down, this is the the opportunity uh, year. I just want everyone to understand that what Richard's explaining here is similar to what we talk about in the residential market a lot, which is that one of the main reasons that buying activity has slowed down is due to affordability or a lack of affordability. And so when Richard says that cap rates might be going up a little bit at the same time where uh, debt costs might be going down a little bit, that increases affordability, relatively speaking, and makes it generally more attractive to buy real estate and commercial assets, especially relative to other potential places that institutional investors or big-time investors could be putting their money. Now that we've discussed the general parameters of the multifamily market, we're going to talk about distress in the multifamily space after this quick break. 
The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know a thing about how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a hospitality-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, Vacasa earns homeowners an average of 20% more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa is always thinking of ways to simplify the vacation home owning experience by putting your home to work for you. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home, work with the reliable property manager, and finally have peace of mind, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com slash biggerpockets. That's vacasa.com slash biggerpockets. The one thing I'm curious about, Richard, that is the other thing we talk about a lot here and just seems to be talked about but never happens is uh, distress in the multifamily market. I think we've been hearing that with all the adjustable rate mortgages uh, that exist and balloon payments, uh, partially amortized loans, that we're going to start seeing a lot of distress. But from the data I've seen, it's just not really happening at the level that pundits have been saying it will for the last few years. So can you just share some information about that? Like, why isn't that ticking up and is there a chance it might? Well, I can say, let's give you some economics um, to, to start with. I think, you know, I, I referred to this at the start of the conversation. One of the reasons we didn't get a recession in 2023 was just how much the Fed and the FDIC had supported the banking sector. Um, and they're still doing that. So making that liquidity available to the banking sector takes the pressure off the banks. Um, uh, now, they've got loans that are underwater. In other words, you know, the, the value of the property is less than the value of the loan. Um, but, you know, the majority of those loans, all of them, the majority of those loans are still paying the interest on the loan. Um, so, you know, if, if in normal times, maybe the banks would want to proceed and, and, and put those loans into foreclosure and, and make sure that their, their assets were secure. But I think with the, the Fed, um, providing liquidity and also guidance behind the scenes, you know, that you need to go easy on the real estate sector, because I think the Fed is conscious that a real estate crisis could have destabilized the economy. You know, that is one of the factors that's behind it. But I also think, you know, more generally, we've seen this in previous real estate downturns. The banks will, you know, work very supportively with, I think, borrowers, particularly borrowers that they've had a long relationship with, but borrowers in general, in the acute stress phase of the cycle uh, when interest rates are peaking. But when, when sentiment improves, Banks will want to just, you know, tidy up their balance sheets a little bit more. Um, so I do, I do think banks will be a little bit more assertive against borrowers in um, 2024, uh, and we will see a, a higher level of distress. I, I don't think it's going to be big enough to d derail the banking sector or, um, you know, create, you know, huge quantities of, um, you know. Uh, fire sale price real estate for investors to pile into. You know, the economy is just too strong. At rates of unemployment of 3.5%, that level of real estate, you know, distress won't, won't take place. Um, but I do see, you know, banks, um, you know, pushing, pushing borrowers, getting the keys back. 
and not wanting necessarily to um, manage those those properties themselves and then and then you know putting them up for auction yeah um, and that will be you know there are some borrowers out there particularly borrowers that have got syndicated uh, loans um, you know lots of small uh, lenders that that haven't got deep pockets there are also merchant developers I think that um, you know finance construction in the early um, part of this decade. Um, they will find it tough to refinance or to keep going in 2024. I wouldn't overstate it, but but we will see it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've done a little bit of analysis of this at, at, at CBRE. If I can put this in context, um, and I'm going to use a term that people might not be familiar with, but it's the kind of, we call it the funding gap. It's the amount of equity that's needed to go into the sector um, uh, in, uh, to reduce, you know, to pay off some of the loans, um, to reduce the loan to value, to make the banks happy. Um, and we think there's probably in 2024 something like a hundred billion of equity required in the office sector, um, and maybe something like 20 billion of equity required in the multifamily sector, um, and no, no equity required in retail or industrial. So that's to put it in context. Um, you know, we do, you know, the, 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 the multifamily sector does need fresh equity in certain parts. Now, of course, that equity can come, um, uh, from, uh, existing investors or, you know, it could be written off and that distressed, uh, property, which may be interest to your, your listeners, yeah. you know, may come onto the market in 2024. Um, and we might be just beginning to see the seeds of, of kind of opportunity. Now, none of that real estate, that, that any, any real estate that, that can pay its way, um, is probably unlikely to be fire sold, but, right. you know, you might get some assets, you know, some poor aquatic quality assets with leasing risk in, in, in tertiary locations or maybe even some newly developed, uh, uh um, multifamily. Um, but with, uh, you know, very high vacancy rates, um, you know, they will be coming onto the market, uh, in 2024 and might provide opportunities for people with the right plan and the right perspective and a lot, you know, particularly a long-term perspective. Um, so, uh, you know, we do see some distress in 2024. That's interesting. Cause yeah, I, I don't just, this is, this is totally anecdotal, but I don't really see it a lot in the bigger groups, but I have heard and talked to people who maybe used bridge or short-term funding in the last two years to try and stabilize a, not a huge thing, but a 10 unit or a 20 unit asset who are being forced to sell right now because their interest rates, when they go to get that long-term debt, uh, it's just not available to them, especially if they're inexperienced. I don't think, uh, a lot of banks, it seems, are willing to throw some good money after uh, at an inexperienced investor who's who's struggling a little bit. So I, you know, I'm never rooting for someone to lose their shirt, but I just do, for the sake of our audience, want people to be aware that although it's not going to be a, a tidal wave of distressed assets or discounted assets, as Richard said, that there are opportunities in the multifamily space where there might be some discounted properties, if you're willing to do the work and to rehabilitate them or take on some of the risk to, you know, stabilize these properties. No, that's exactly right. Um, 
uh, and I would be looking in, in smaller markets, um, uh, but also looking at kind of newer product that may be struggling to lease up. Oh, really? Um, Interesting. You know, the newer product that was kicked off that, you know, in 2020 or 2021, um, you know, that, that I don't know that those markets will be available to smaller investors because, you know, that a lot of that product product will be kind of quite high grade and, and quite large. Um, but the, you know, I, th I think that's where the stress is going to hit. Right. But the fundamental thing is we don't have enough houses in the United States. So, you know, the kind of the, the big, as long as people are confident, the other, the other thing that will kill multifamily is unemployment. You know, if we get our soft landing and unemployment, you know, remains somewhere between 3.5 and even 4.5, then you've still got um, enough people, you know, in employment that are going to, you know, feel confident enough to be able to either buy a home or rent a home. Um, and, uh, you know, that provides fairly solid fundamentals. And um, interest rates may not be going back down to the levels they were in 2009 to 2019 but they are coming down. So, uh, you know, I expect this, you know, to be a year of opportunity. Wow, that's good. It's good to hear that there there might be opportunity. One question I've been very personally curious about, Richard, that I'd love your take on is with the softness in rent, you said, you know, we're maybe at 0% uh, rent growth right now. There's been a tick up in vacancy. Is there any potential to for that softness to spill into the residential rental market. A lot of our audience operate single family homes or two to four bedroom, you know, two to four unit, excuse me. Um, and we're just personally just curious, like if there's an abundance of, like you said, really nice new A-class properties coming on board, could that impact the tenant pool for some of the rentals that our audience typically own? Potentially, yes. I mean, I wouldn't say that was a nationwide phenomenon. I mean, I think what we, we're seeing is the the bigger wave of supplies in um, the Sunbelt markets. Um, so, you know, Phoenix, uh, Dallas, uh, the Carolinas, Nashville. Um, those are the areas that uh, maybe even Miami too. Um, you know, that they've got the big supply pipelines. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, uh, all, all real estate competes with all real estate at, at, at the margins. And where you've got that, um, that big supply, those, those rising vacancies, those falling, falling rents in good properties, then, you know, people are going to display normal eco economizing behavior and, and go to the, the better quality, cheaper locations. Absolutely, they are. If you want to keep in track with that, then you've got to drop your rents to compete. Um, but I think that oversupply issue um, is a sunbelt market issue. And I, you know, as I said initially, it may persist for 24 months. Mm -hmm. But I think the recent census that, that you may have focused on, um, you know, just shows that the, the drift of population to the Sunbelt cities remains intact. Mm -hmm. um, you know, people moving from the high cost coastal, coastal cities, New York, Boston, um, you know, San Francisco, L.A., to the Sunbelt cities because of cheaper, um, uh, you know, cost of living, lower tax and maybe other other factors, um, they will be 
you know, a solid support for the multifamily sector in the longer term. Well, thank you. That, that explains it. I know it's not Sunbelt, but Denver, where I invest frequently, is also listed as one of those highly oversupplied markets. And when I start to see those banners on the, you know, on the big buildings that are like free rent or, you know, move in special, I'm like, oh, no, this is not going to be good. <laughs> um, but it is obviously very regional when you look at commercial building and construction data. You know, if you look at somewhere in the Midwest versus, you know, Central Florida, you're going to see very different uh, numbers. And so important to keep in mind that that's super regional. You know, for, for every banner that you can see a free rent, you know, you've got, you know, um, 100 households in, in Los Angeles who've been longing to move to Denver, um, you know, for the last five years, but haven't been able to afford it, can now start to afford it. Um, and, you know, these things take time to work through the system. Um, you know, that, that, that fall in rents, um, you know, will kick off, you know, will awake some latent demand that's out there. Mm, that's interesting. It's funny, you know, you should say, I think one of the markets where it's been hottest recently, uh, where um, rents are, multifamily rents are coming down quite sharply is, is uh, Miami. And, you know, that, that was, I think, probably the hottest of hot markets. Yeah. Um, I, I suppose it's a story that, you know, all real estate investors should, you know, keep at the back of the line. You know, even the hottest of hot markets eventually cools. Real estate is a cyclical business. It, you know, mm -hmm. cycles may be, you know, of different length and different periodicity. And sometimes you can get, you know, markets that buck the cycle, but, You've got to think about real estate as a cyclical business and um, what goes up comes down. Yeah, that's a, that's a very, very good point for people to remember. And oftentimes I find that by the time you've heard that it's a hot market, it's probably already the end of the cycle. Like you may have missed it. Uh, so just something to think about, not to go chasing, you know, some lagging data. You get the best bargains in the most bombed out markets. Exactly. And it's not for everybody. Uh, but, uh, you know, if you've got a long-term perspective, um, then, you know, the, the people who make the most money out of real estate are those that really can make the long-term work for them. That's very well said. Completely agree. My last question for you, Richard, before we get out of here is what would your advice be for real estate investors who are interested in the commercial space? It's probably mostly multifamily, but just the broad commercial space. How would you suggest they either do research or approach their investing strategy in 2024? You shouldn't necessarily limit yourself to multifamily. Um, I think there are, there are parts of the retail market that are you know, small enough and, and manageable enough for um, you know, smaller investors to take a look at. Um, but I think there's no getting around doing your homework. Uh, you know, you've got to kind of under, you've got to kind of understand the, the supply and demand dynamics in each of those markets. Um, be very, very aware of, uh, uh, you know, new projects coming online. Be very aware of the factors that drive real estate, the, the kind of population growth, where the, you know, which are the companies that are moving in, where are the jobs being created, where are the houses being put up. Um, you know, be aware of, of kind of all of the fundamentals and the linkages there. Um, be aware of the tax, uh, uh, you know, which is a kind of, you know, very movable feast. 
But then I think, you, you know, it's all about relationships. You know, you've got to form um, good relationships with key brokers um, who know the market. Um, and you've got to be um, a good buyer. You know, you can't waste people's time. If you're going to, if you're going to um, you know, form good relationships with the brokerage community, um, you've got to, you've, you, you know, you've got to do deals. The more deals you do, the more brokers will be willing to spend time with you. So, um, at whatever level you are, you're at, you, you, you've got to kind of, you've got to commit. Eventually, you can't just talk to people forever. But I think forming relationships and also forming uh, relationships with with you know other parts of the financial community, you know your banks, your capital uh, suppliers, and being a reliable um, uh, partner for them, these all pay off in terms of of you know um, having the sport to do the deals when the deals you want to do come along. That's great advice for a multifamily commercial and really anything else. I think developing a network. Uh, is hugely important, but I think you gave a great piece of advice here on how to build a network, which is to be serious and take the people you're talking to's time seriously as well. If you're kicking the tires for a really long time, people are going to just naturally lose interest in working with you. And so it's really important to build your network, but also build some momentum and really start working towards that deal once you start talking to brokers or financiers or potential partners so that you can get that deal and you don't get in this cycle of just talking to people about what you hope to one day do, but unfortunately are not actually getting to. So I appreciate that that great advice there, Richard. Richard, if anyone wants to read your outlook on 2024, any of the other great research you and your huge team of analysts do, where should they check that out? CBRE.com. Research and Insights page. Excellent. Making it easy. And we will definitely put a link to that in our show notes. Richard Barkham, thank you so much for joining us. We greatly appreciate it and hope you have a great new year. Yes, same to you and all your listeners. On the Market was created by me, Dave Meyer, and Kalen Bennett. The show is produced by Kalen Bennett with editing by Exodus Media. Copywriting is by Calico Content. And we want to extend a big thank you to everyone at Bigger Pockets for making this show possible. The housing market is changing, and finding your way right now can be a bit tricky. There are rate shifts, there are confusing headlines, but at the end of the day, your goal hasn't changed. You probably still want financial freedom as much as ever. Well, the good thing is that experienced investors know it's not about trying to time the market. It's about the amount of time you have in the market. And if you're ready to get into real estate investing game, you can still do that, or you can take your game to the next level by finding an investor-friendly agent. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in just a few minutes. You head over to biggerpockets.com deals, enter in some details about what you want, where you want to buy, and boom, you instantly get matched with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com slash deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com slash deals.
That's biggerpockets.com slash deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investments in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.